You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So the year is 336 BC and Alexander the Great has just become king of Macedonia and almost immediately after becoming king, Alexander launches into a military campaign that within seven years would establish the largest empire of the ancient world. Alexander would conquer everything from what is modern day Greece down into Egypt and then all the way across into India. And in the midst of these conquests, before he moved from one battle to the next, he would rename the conquered territories after himself. He did this to at least 70 different cities, giving them the new name Alexandria. And most of these cities are still around today. And the renaming of these cities was a a strategic move for Alexander because the purpose of his conquest was to advance Greek culture. Each of the cities named Alexandria was created to be a model community for the surrounding area on what it meant to be Greek. They were Greek outposts that became Greek ecosystems of Greek language and Greek values and Greek identity and as far as a strategy a strategy goes this was this this went pretty well for Alexander there's a reason today we don't call him Alexander the normal right this this was a good strategy it was effective it was unprecedented except that within around 300 years uh, something very similar would happen again this time there was a Jewish man named Jesus who showed up in Western Asia and claimed to be God. He was crucified by the Romans, but then three days later, after his death, he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, and he empowered his followers by spirit to understand the Hebrew Scriptures and to start a movement that would outlast every man-made empire. It started first in Jerusalem. When on one day, 3,000 Jewish people swore allegiance to Jesus. And then from there, they formed a community that met together to worship Jesus and to learn how to follow him together. And from there, they started new communities in Judea and then Samaria. And then it wasn't long before a Roman citizen, Greek-trained Jewish scholar from Turkey was dramatically converted. And he started going by the Greek name Paul. The resurrected Jesus had appeared to him and commissioned him to take the news of Jesus' reign to the Gentile world. He was to go and tell this news to Greeks and to barbarians. Go and tell the world about Jesus. And so Paul did that. He would go into these different cities and he would preach the truth about Jesus and people would believe. And then he would organize these believers into communities, into assemblies called churches. And Paul did this everywhere. He did it in Corinth and Galatia and Ephesus and Rome. And through his deputies, he did it in a Greek island known as Crete. Paul would go and plant the gospel. He'd plant the gospel and he'd grow churches. And these would be churches organized under the lordship of Jesus. And similar to the Alexandrias of the ancient world, These churches were created to be model communities for the surrounding area on what it meant to be Christian. Or we would say what it means to be truly human. 
These churches, rooted in the gospel of Jesus, were meant to be outposts for the kingdom of Jesus that advanced new creation culture until Jesus returns. That is the purpose of the church. Local churches are meant to witness to the reign of Jesus. And this is really important for us if we're going to understand Titus chapter 2. Because if we just skim through Titus chapter 2, we might mistake these verses as only ethical instructions. But if we can locate these ethical instructions within the greater purpose of the church, then I think we'll we'll see that the stakes are high here. And this passage here in Titus is actually central to the entire letter. So I want us to start here. Okay, there there are two parts to the sermon, really simple, two parts. Number one is why does it matter how we live? And then over here, number two, how do we live? Why does it matter how we live? And then how do we live? Let's pray again and we'll get started. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this time as we gather here in worship and we gather now to hear from you. We ask that you would speak to us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so over here, why does it matter how we live? It's important for us to see what surrounds these ethical instructions in verse 1 and verse 11. Look first at verse 1. Paul starts here by saying, but as for you which means this is contrasted with what he has previously said about the false teachers. Most recently, chapter 1, verse 16, Paul has said that the false teachers are unfit for any good work. Chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, Titus, as for you, Titus, unlike the false teachers, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And this word here for what accords with is, is really important it's key because it it means what is fitting it's it's what is appropriate paul is talking about instructions on how you live and he's saying that there must be there should be there has to be a congruence between our conviction and our practice the way that we live the things that you do the way that you act the way that you relate to others our behavior must be in line with our embrace of what God has said in the scriptures and through his apostles. This is sound doctrine. We've said before, this is the whole hog of what God has said. That's verse one. That's how Paul begins here. And then we have verses two to 10. And in verses two to 10, Paul explains to to Titus how this looks. He, He gives here actual practical instructions on what it looks like to live in line with sound doctrine. Now look at verse 11. And I just want to say I know I am dipping into next week's passage, okay? Pastor Joe, you understand, all right? Look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to live a certain way. Paul basically summarizes here what he has just detailed in the previous verses. Verse 11 is the ground for all the instruction on how we should live. It provides us the basis. What's the basis then, Paul? The grace of God has appeared. 
which is to say, the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is what God has done. God has manifested his grace in sending Jesus to rescue sinners and disciple us in his ways. And how we live must emerge from this. Verse 1 and verse 11 go together in a, a glorious union and we should never separate them. Verse 1 tells us how we live must be in line with what God has said. Verse 11 tells us that how we live must emerge from what God has done. Another way to say it, we must live congruent with the scriptures, empowered by the gospel. And it's always, everywhere, both. If, if you try to live congruent with the scriptures without the gospel, you will stumble into a suffocating self-righteousness. And if you ignore how you live and focus only on grace, then you distort the gospel, you distort the meaning of grace, and you miss the whole point. The way we live must be in line with what God has said, and it must emerge from what God has done. This explains the ethical instructions in verses 2 to 10. This is how the church witnesses to the reign of Jesus. This is how we do it. This is how we witness to the reign of Jesus. What do you think makes the outside world look at the church and say, wow, they answer to a different king. They are part of a different kingdom. Well, it's when the outside world looks at the church and sees the church living congruent with the scriptures, empowered by the gospel. Living this way is our witness to the reign of Jesus. And this is not just a theological principle. It is that, but it's also here in the text. There are three purpose clauses in this passage that each have to do with the outside display of our faith. Verses 5, 8, and 10, all right? Just, if you have your Bible, look, look ahead at these verses. Verse 5, young women are to be submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, Titus should have uh, non-condemnable speech so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, Bond servants, slaves, should show all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In each of these cases, the purpose for the behavior is what it displays on the church's behalf. This is what we call witness. That's especially clear, I think, in verse 8. Verse 8, Titus, who is an individual, a church member, Titus, a church member, should teach and speak in a way that cannot be condemned so that opponents will be ashamed having nothing evil to say about us. Do you see the, the church member, church relation in Paul's thinking here? When, when the outside world sees a Christian individual, when, when, when the outside world sees a church member do something shady, do you know what they do? They say something evil about the church, right? 
This happens all the time. How many times have you heard people say, those Christians? Happens all the time. And it also happened here in the first century. Individual Christians, church members, bear a responsibility. Each of us bears a responsibility to represent the church corporate. Our lives say something about our king and about the kingdom that we belong to. Paul is very concerned here with the church's faithful witness in chapter 2. That's what he, he is concerned here in chapter 2 with the church's faithful witness, just like he was concerned in chapter 1 with the gospel's purity. Because both of those go together. Truth-telling and right living. The content of our confession and the character of us confessors. What we believe and how we live. They must always be in harmony. And when they are not, the church's witness is muzzled. This is why it matters how we live. Part one. This is why it matters. It matters how we live. In summary, I'll say it, a little summary statement here. Part one. Church members must live congruent with Scripture, empowered by the gospel, in order for the church to faithfully witness to the reign of Jesus. That's part one. Now, part two. And part two is where we get more specific, okay? Because part two is how we live. Actually, how do we live on the ground? What does it look like? Paul in this passage, 2 to 10, he mentions five groups of church members and he tailors Christian behavior for each of these groups. There are, I counted, 21 different behaviors listed in here overall. From 2 to 10, 21 behaviors. And I kept going back and forth on the best way to to work through the passage and I just decided that we're going to slow down in each each group and I'm going to mention each behavior and then I'm going to give a little bit of commentary for each group. Okay, so it's going to take a minute, but, but hang with me, all right? And I want, to preface, I want to preface this section this way, okay? I want you to know what, I, what I'm about to do because I want us to be on the same page, okay? I'm about to speak to older men and older women and younger women and younger men about how we live. We're going to talk about your life. We're going to talk about our behaviors, Okay? And this is going to get, Paul gets here very practical, okay? Just want to be on the same page. That's what we're doing here in verses 2 to 10, starting with verse 2. Verse 2, Paul addresses, he talks about these older men. And in case you're wondering, what constitutes an older man for the Apostle Paul? There's not a set age, but. There is evidence that suggests that the dividing line was somewhere around 50 years old. Okay? The life expectancy, of course, was a little bit lower in the ancient world. But around 50, some scholars say it was between probably 40 and 50 and upwards. That's kind of the dividing line of an older man. Okay? So just somewhere around there. Okay? And Paul tells Titus to teach the older men. To be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and then sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. To be sober-minded is to be measured and clear-headed. 
To be dignified means to be respectable. It means to be the kind of man that younger men admire. The word for self-control here has a range of meaning. It could be anything from uh, moderation to just straight wisdom. And I think we should think about this word for self-control as the wise governance of ourselves. And then lastly here, this, this phrase, to be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. This reminds us of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where Paul mentions three Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love, the three great Christian virtues. And that same triad pattern we see in 1 Corinthians is used here by Paul, except rather than use the word hope, he uses the word steadfast. It's not, it's not faith, hope, and love. What does he say? Faith, love, and steadfastness. And that's not because hope is less important for older men. I think it's because steadfastness is the manifestation of hope in older men. The way that most of us think about hope, especially if you're younger, is that hope is the name for reality that's way out ahead of us. We have God's promises. There are realities in the future that we're banking on, but they're, they're way out there. And so we, we figure that we have a lot of living to do between here and there. There's a, there's a lot of hoping that will happen between this point and that point. But then somewhere along the way, somewhere along the journey, you cross a threshold. And you realize that you're actually closer to the hope than you were when you first started. And so the way you hope starts to look different. You're not thinking about this as something way out there because you're getting closer and closer and closer. And so you hope by holding on. You hope by being patient. You hope by being steadfast because more years on earth are now behind you than before you. Hope means you stand strong. Hope looks like steadfastness. So, brother, sirs, be sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Next in verse 3, we have here the older women. Titus is to teach these older women to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. Teach what is good and train younger women. To be reverent in behavior is, is the all-encompassing behavior here. The idea is to be noble. This is, this is the only time the word is used in the whole New Testament. It, it has the idea of, of being glorious, being radiant. Practically, what does it look like? It looks like not slandering others. Other English translations will say malicious gossip. Don't do that. It also means don't be enslaved to much wine. And then fourth, it means teach what is good and so train the younger women. And this last one here is especially remarkable because in all the behaviors that Paul mentions, this is the only positive action that is expected of one group in relation to another. Older women are to be teachers and trainers of younger women. 
notice this is a behavior that Paul does not qualify. He doesn't say, okay, this is really for you older women who are especially extroverted. This is for all older women. Teaching and training younger women is expected of older women in the same way that they're expected not to be drunks. This is an amazing responsibility, especially because of how Paul talks about the younger women in verse 4. In verse 4, on younger women, their behavior is described as what the older women teach them. You see that? When Paul lists their behavior, he's listing their behavior as what they are taught by older women. This again emphasizes the role of older women in the church. When it comes to the rhythms of discipleship and ethical instruction for younger women, that has to come through older women. Titus is to teach the older women to teach and train the younger women to love their husbands and love their children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be workers at home and kind, to be submissive to their husbands. Now, when Paul is saying this, he's assuming that most of the women in this church are married. But at least half of what he says here applies to all women, married or not married, right? But he starts here with loving husbands and children. It's the first thing he says, young women should love their husbands and children. Literally the words are be husband loving and children loving. And this is, I, this is interesting to me because we might think that this is almost too easy for Paul to mention, right? Like does Paul really have to tell mothers to love their children? I mean it's it's an easy thing for mothers to do that. It's a delightful thing for mothers to do that. And yet, at the same time, family love is a discipline to be taught. Family love is not something to be left on autopilot in a young mother's life, but it should be a, a quality about her. Also in verse 5, young women are to be self-controlled and pure. This again means to live wisely and also wholesomely. Next, young women are to be working at home or workers at home. It's one word, it means home workers. And this is the part where we can tend to read our own context into the text. So give me a minute here. Okay? We, we, we can think that Paul is saying that women should work at home as opposed to working outside the home. But we should remember that in this day, everybody worked at home because there was nowhere else to work. There were no offices to go to. There were no factories. The home was the primary place of industry, whether that meant farming or trade or whatever it was. So Paul is not saying women must work at home so that the men can work outside the home. Paul is saying that women have a special role in the home that is particular to them as women, even when everybody else is home too. Wives and mothers are the hardship of the home. They command the environment of the home, which is true even if they have other work and responsibilities outside the home. The home 
is a special domain that only becomes what it's meant to be through the exercise of a woman's design. And also, young women are to be kind. And that's a, that's a little word that's kind of squeezed in there, but it's important because kindness is a demeanor that affects everything else, right? The question that you might ask, the question, am I being kind, is a question that applies to everything all the time, right? Kindness is an important demeanor that affects everything. And then lastly here we see young women should be submissive to their own husbands, which is the same verb we find in Ephesians 5, 21. Paul says their wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And the word for submit is the idea of respect, which Paul says later in Ephesians 5, verse 33, when he says, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So submissiveness or respect is the behavior expected of young women toward their husbands and this should not be controversial. No more than that a young woman should be husband loving or children loving. This is God's natural order for the family and it's good. It's good. The husband is to love his wife. The wife is to submit to her husband. Love and respect. That is the Bible's recipe for a healthy marriage that witnesses to the reign of Jesus. Here in verse 5, however, Paul doesn't get into the expectations for, for Christian men, Christian husbands. Not like he does in Ephesians 5. Here in Titus 2, he is just speaking about the wife's behavior. And this behavior of submissiveness or respect, I think, is especially challenging today because our cultural current does not flow in that direction. That's an understatement, okay? If respecting your husband is right here, the cultural current flows this way and fast, okay? And when, and when the current is flowing this way and flowing fast this way, when that current is all around us, it's easy for young wives to pick up subtle postures toward their husbands that are disrespectful and demeaning and cynical. And this is not, not necessarily overt defiance, but it comes through in their tone of voice to their husbands or their attitude or their lack of trust or the way they patronize his interests or the way they talk about their husbands with others. One place you might see this is when wives get together and unplanned and unscripted, they, they begin to speak negatively about their husbands. And all the women roll their eyes and based upon their conversation, you would think that their husbands are all knuckle-dragging Neanderthals. What you end up having in that situation is the opposite of Paul's instruction. Because Christian women are precisely the ones, the only ones, 
who can encourage other Christian women to respect their husbands like the Bible says, but instead they end up commiserating on how their husbands are all buffoons. Because they simply repeat the stereotype of men that's promoted in our culture. This is not good. And I think this is a real danger for Christian wives. Not just because of our cultural current, but because of what is required of Christian husbands. Christian husbands are to love their wives sacrificially, like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And if you have a sacrificially loving husband, but a disrespectful wife, his love can actually enable her disrespect because he assumes and maybe he's been told that taking his lumps is what it means to be like Jesus. So he takes his lumps, but her sin is never challenged. Her sin is never addressed because the Christian women around her do not help. This is why it is so important for the local church to have wise women who teach and train the way that Paul says. And we have such women at our church. And I thank God for you. Verse 6, to younger men, Titus is to urge this group. Now, this is the only time this verb is used, okay? It means he's to earnestly exhort these younger men to be self-controlled. It's the only behavior mentioned here. There's this strong verb here to urge, but then only one behavior. And this is the third time this behavior is mentioned in the passage. Paul said it about older men, about younger women, and here again to younger men, it's the word sophroneo, it means, we've talked about it, to live wisely. It's the wise governance of the self. It means your person should be compelled by prudence, not passion. And this is the banner behavior for younger men. But of course, it's not the only behavior expected of younger men. None of these lists, I need to say, none of these lists are exhaustive, okay? That's clearest, I think, here in verse six. Because notice what Paul says to Titus in verse seven. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good work. So Paul goes straight from self-control, that's expected of young men, to telling Titus to be an example to these young men, which tells us two things. First, it tells us that Titus was most likely part of that group. Titus was probably between 30 and 40 years old. Second, it means that that the young men are not just expected to have self-control, but they are expected to follow the example of their pastors, including all the qualifications required of pastors. So see, this was a little sneaky here. Because we read through the passage, we see just one word, one behavior, self-control. But if we get the implications of what Paul is saying in verse 7, his expectations for younger men are probably the highest of all. Every younger man in the church should have the kind of character that qualifies him for pastoral ministry. And it starts 
with self-control. There is nothing more relevant to yourself than taking responsibility for yourself. That's not rocket science, but I'm going to say it again, okay? There is nothing more relevant to yourself than taking responsibility for yourself. Self-control is the magisterial virtue for young men. And do you know what the opposite of self-control is? It's whining. See, that's what I tell my kids all the time. The opposite of self-control is whining. It's not taking responsibility. It's making everything you encounter somebody else's fault. Self-control. Start with self-control. Verse 9. Verse 9 is for bond, bond servants, slaves. And we've addressed the topic of ancient slavery back in our First Timothy series. So I refer you to those sermons. And so for today, for application, I, what Paul is saying here to bond servants applies to employees. Okay, so this is for any salaried, wage-earning employee. Okay? They should be submissive to your masters or superiors, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, showing all good faith. And, and pretty much any employment contract in our day is going to have expectations just like these. It's just that Christians are the only ones who actually abide by them. First, be submissive or respect. That's, that's, that's the general posture. That, that, that means it, it's spelled out here with, with these other behaviors, being well-pleasing. Start, start there, being well-pleasing. This simply means perform your, your duties in a way that your boss appreciates. To, to not be argumentative means don't have an antagonistic bent. Like don't walk around your workplace huffing and puffing, always annoyed. Don't, don't be that way. To not pilfer literally means to not keep back what is not yours. It means don't steal. And then lastly, to show all good faith or faithfulness means to be trustworthy. Be reliable. Be somebody in your workplace that others can count on. Be a model employee in all, in all things, whatever your duties might be. And the purpose here is in verse 10. As we've seen twice before, the purpose is to be a witness to Jesus. Don't let your behavior contradict the gospel transformation that has happened in your life, but let your behavior adorn it. Let your behavior commend it. Let your behavior highlight it. And that goes for everybody. It goes for older men and older women and for younger women and younger men, all the members of the church. This applies. And there is a remarkable connectedness here I want you to see among these different groups. Paul certainly advocates discriminate discipleship. Christ-likeness is the single goal for Christian behavior, but it's not a one-size-fits-all, see? It's tailored. Christian behavior is tailored for these different groups who are different, but who are also bound together. One small word in the passage that reminds us of this is the word likewise used in verse three and verse six. It means literally in the same way. Paul is saying to the church here, he's saying young and old, men and women, here are particular behaviors expected of you in the same way. See that? 
Here are specific things that that you should do, ways that you should be as an older man, as an older woman, as a younger woman, as a younger man, all in the same way. Because, remember, as the church, we still have the same purpose, and the purpose is to witness to the reign of Jesus, which comes through our living in congruence with the Scriptures, empowered by the Gospel, and that's what now brings us to the table. The last, most important thing to say about verses 1 to 10 is said in verses 11 to 15. The grace of God has appeared. This means that none of the behaviors we're called to is the basis of our salvation. Our salvation is based solely on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because of Jesus, we don't grab onto these behaviors like gung-ho volunteers eager to flex our own strength. But instead, we receive these words from God as loving guidance for men and women who have been set free by his mercy. We receive the behaviors listed here in verses 2 to 10 in the same way that we come to this table. Empty-handed and thankful that Jesus is enough. So this morning, if you're here and you trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to receive this table. We do this table each week for the covenant members of of City's Church, but if you're here and you're united to Jesus by faith, we invite you to eat and to drink with us, and we'll come and serve you now. You can just hold your hand out like this, and we'll drop it in there. The body of Jesus is the true bread. The blood of Jesus is the true drink. Let us serve you.